Good afternoon and welcome to Living Writers on WCBN-FM. Uh, I am Tex. Our regular host, T, is out of town. So instead of uh, T for Texas, uh, we have Texas for T for a change. Uh, T uh, will be back in a couple of weeks. And with that Detroit song of tracking the game, we have a Detroit writer uh, or a writer who has uh, uh, described Detroit in detail. Uh, over the years. Lauren D. Esselman, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for being with us here today. Um, I'm especially happy to be on a program called Living Writers. The alternative was not uh, uh, very favorable. And as uh, Maurice Chevalier said when uh, he uh, someone asked him how it felt to reach the age of 80, uh, he said, not great, but I actually prefer it to the alternative. Right. Well, we... Um, uh, we often start by just reading a few uh, biographical details on the writer. Uh, Lauren D. Esselman is the author of more than 60 novels, all of which were written on a manual typewriter. Uh, his latest book, Infernal Angels, is the 21st to feature Private Eye Amos Walker. Esselman's recent novels include The Left-Handed Dollar, the 20th Amos Walker novel, and Roy and Lily, A Love Story. His work has earned him four Seamus Awards, five Spur Awards, and three Western Heritage Awards thus far. He currently resides in Michigan with his wife, author Deborah Morgan. Um, it's been widely reported that you've written uh, all of your books on a manual typewriter, uh, so I have a different question. Where do you get spare parts for those things these days? <laughs> the nice thing about it is that uh, the really good manuals um, uh, never wear out. I can fix most of what goes wrong with them. Uh, I, I found myself becoming a typewriter repairman because a number of years ago I would, uh, I would buy old typewriters at Kiwanis sales and things like that to just have the spare parts. But that's before I found out, particularly with something like the wonderful old, my favorite machine in the 1923 Underwood, they just never wear out. My biggest question was, 
where I would get ribbons. So I sent my wife, who was computer literate, um, onto the net, and she found an 800 number from a place that I called a, a typewriter, a paper and ribbon supply, where I ordered them by the case. And I keep them in the refrigerator. Harlan Ellison, science fiction writer, gave me that tip. He said they stay crisper longer if you keep them in the refrigerator before you put them in the machine. Wow. Uh I, yeah, I, I was wondering about the ribbons specifically, but someone on a plane once told me there's an aftermarket for everything. Yeah, there really is. And what a lot of, what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, Olivetti still, still uh, sells, I think, 250,000 manuals a year to the third world. So they're very much alive. Yeah, I, I, I guess around the world uh, you certainly would. Are you able to hear me okay? I'm yes, I can. Can you hear me all right? I, I can hear you. I'm getting an odd effect, but I guess... I'm the only one who hears it, so that's, well, I have that effect. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, that's not a problem there. I think we're, uh, we've got that cleared up. Okay, well, I know that you have uh, one new book coming out and, and are working on another, so uh, we can talk about those a little later. But uh, to begin with, I just wanted to ask you a few questions about the earlier uh, sure. part of your career. Um, what persuaded you uh, to try... Uh, the private eye genre back in the 70s? Uh, it's interesting. I, uh, I think I had um, I had just come back from seeing Farewell, My Lovely in the theater. That was a revival of, of uh, Philip Marlowe with Robert Mitchum. Uh, it was seven, seven periods set during the Second World War. And it was so evocative of the time and of that, uh, that noir genre that it really got under my skin. And I thought, I, I would love to do something like that, but bring it up to today. Um, and uh, set it in Detroit. There's no, there had never been a private eye series set in Detroit that I knew of, and yet it seemed like such a perfect backdrop for that kind of story. So that's what started my uh, my machinery, my inner machinery, working that direction. Uh, I I was going to ask about Detroit. If you know, for such a major city and for a city that was. Uh, just in its urban architecture and traffic design intended to be, you know, one of the great cities of the world. Right. Uh, you know, there aren't that many books of any genre uh, set in Detroit. Um, and yet it, it certainly has its own spoken voice. I recently uh, read praise of one of the Mexican groceries on the southwest side uh, of a certain dish, and someone praised it by saying, you can curb stomp my mouth into that anytime. <laughs> and I, I'm having a hard time thinking of another city where a food would be praised. Were you trying to, you know, have you over the years tried to capture the the speech of Detroit? And yeah, yeah, I have. Um, it's a very... Um interesting combination of dialect. You still have uh, some of the uh, the old ethnic uh, origins still hanging around and some of the speech patterns. Of course, you get modern-day urban, uh, the urban accent. Um, I've always got my ears open for that kind of thing. I'm a, I'm a pretty good dialogue man. I've gotten a lot of attention for my dialogue, and I like to capture an illusion on the page of the way people speak. So whenever I'm in Detroit or with Detroit, I've always got my ears wide open. Um, in uh, in the earlier uh, part of your career, you've said that you didn't uh, you didn't you discovered Raymond Chandler's books later, mm -hmm. um, but he wasn't who you were 
emulating at the start. Uh, who did you who who did you model yourself it, on? You know, it's hard to say. I don't know if, uh, in retrospect, and and even at the time, that you really consciously know um, that you're drawing on other writers' styles and approach. Um, that the the influences are there, whether you're aware of them or not. I know I grew up reading. Um, um, Hemingway and Edgar Allan Poe and um, Edith Wharton and uh, Willa Cather, uh, Fitzgerald, a lot of very disparate authors and each excellent in uh, his or her own area. So some of these things, there's kind of a polyglot thing that happens. It all kind of gets gets mixed together. Now I was surprised uh, when I was earlier reviewed that I was, uh, I was considered the Chandlerian type because at that time, as I said, I hadn't read him. Although I think the influence was there because so many of the movies of the 1940s were either based on his works or um, or the screenplays were written by him, so there was a real cadence there, uh, a way of using language and rhythms of speech. I also studied I had studied art for uh, 12 years uh, before I, I threw all my energy into my writing. Uh, so my style tends to be very visual, so I think an awful lot of the art training, formal art training I had, had a great deal to do with uh, creating the, uh, uh, the way I spend my books. Uh, yeah, you've, uh, you, uh, people, uh, reviewers have praised your dialogue, but uh, what's, what struck, has struck me in, in reading several of them over the years has been, you know, that exact thing, the, uh, the visual description applied to a place that uh, people don't conventionally think of as, as beautiful or as something to rhapsodize about, but you have. Well, yeah, there is. Uh, I think um, the the extremes are fun to write about. You can write about the uh, uh, the, the cool green lawns and Gross Point, uh, and have just as much fun reading of uh, writing about uh, uh, some of the grungy areas and the, the neighborhoods, uh, the deteriorating neighborhoods of Detroit. They're real textures to those places. And I'm glad you, uh, you 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 liked the description because they talk about my dialogue so much, but I think I, uh, I think I have at least as much fun writing description. I was talking to Elmore Leonard one time and he's got this this rule somebody said, you know, what's the secret of your success? And he says, I, uh, I I leave out the parts that people skip over. And when I was talking to uh, to Dutch not too long ago, I've known him for many years. Yeah. Uh, I said, you know, you know, Dutch, what you said about uh, leaving the, the parts that people skip over. He said, yeah. I said, that's my entire career. <laughs> <laughs> so I tend to write the kind of, enjoy and write the kind of things that a lot of people aren't 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 interested in, but uh, I enjoy it. Well, but makes what makes people keep coming back is that they pick up a little bit uh, mm. of that, a little bit more of that layer each time they they encounter you. Um, I, a friend of mine interviewed you 25 years ago for the Ann Arbor Observer, so mm. I went back and looked that up. And in that interview, you said the mainstream novel is dead; no one's buying them. Some of the best writing done today is in genre fiction. Mm. Would you still uh, stand by that statement? Yeah, to a certain degree. Because you know, earlier on you tend to say some radical things to get attention, but I believed it, and I still do to, the, to this day. And that, I don't mean to denigrate to that kind of writing, but what has happened um, in, in recent years, say the last 30, 40 years, say since the pop culture revolution of the 1960s, all of the genres which were uh, before that um, limited to Basically, a plot and uh, what was uh, what was expected of the genre, the western, or the romance, or the uh, the mystery, or science fiction, or fantasy. 
um, they have they have spread and uh, and broadened their approach that they can they can make social commentary. They can talk about the world at large. They can talk about humanity um, and deal with some very broad issues, and yet still stick to what people expect of those genres. And basically, what they've done is 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 occupied the territory that was formerly exclusive to uh, to mainstream writing. Um, you know, at one one point, the historical novel was very popular in this country, and it's not anymore. And yet, you'll see so much history in the in mysteries. You see historical mysteries and historical romances, and, um, some science futuristic science fiction that seems like something that might have happened 400 years ago. Um, so a lot of that, uh, as I say, that territory has been taken up uh, and shoving mainstream into a smaller and smaller group. If you look at the, the writers who are known, most of the writers who are known for writing mainstream, and they're all extremely good writers, um, is that their their age age level is putting getting pretty far the farther up there. I don't see a whole lot of young people coming along to take their place. Most of the younger, newer writers seem to be choosing this or that genre, whatever seems more uh, appropriate to the particular writer, um, because uh, they offer so much more. Uh, raw material than they used to a few generations ago. Uh, yeah, Carl Hyacin is uh, a, a writer that I've been familiar with, and mm-hmm. I know that they always have trouble classifying his books uh, in bookstores and online. as they're, they're mysteries on the surface, but they're sure satires of a, right. a pretty high sort about the place uh, that, that they come from. That's true. Um, I want to ask in a minute about about Amos Walker, since that was who your last book was about and and your next one. But uh, in the early part of your career, uh, you wrote about uh, Sherlock Holmes. You wrote a couple of Sherlock Holmes fantasy novels, and you were kind of ahead of the curve on those. Um, are, have you ever thought of returning to that genre? Yeah, actually, I, I have on uh, quite a number of occasions. I've been asked to do uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, short stories for uh, different uh, collections, usually overseen by the Conan Doyle estate, which, by the way, is still legally active in the United States. Uh-huh. You need the uh, the the uh, permission of the estate uh, to use the characters created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And most recently, I think I think I was. I've been thinking about this for some time. I was I was encouraged by the success of the new Sherlock Holmes movie series and the Sherlock Holmes television series uh, to put together a collection of all of my uh, short stories. Uh, I, uh, most of them are published. One is brand new to the collection. Um, it's called The Perils of Sherlock Holmes. I think it will be out next year from uh, Tyrus Books. Um, and... Uh, I believe it to be the first single author collection of Sherlock Holmes stories since Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's last collection, uh, The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes, back in the 1920s. Um, we've seen a lot of collections of different authors, but I think this is the first one we'll have seen of one author's attempt to, uh, to uh, uh, work with those characters. Uh-huh. Sure. Wow. That's very interesting. And as I say, you, you were uh, ahead of the curve on that. You are listening to the Living Writers Program on WCBN-FM. Uh, I'm Tex, filling in for tea today. We're talking with uh, Lauren D. Esselman up in Whitmore Lake, Michigan, uh, creator of Amos Walker, one of the enduring series of the uh, hard-boiled private eye genre. Um you have a new Amos Walker book coming out very soon, and it yeah. will be, uh, 
uh, unveiled or given one of its early presentations at Aunt Agatha's bookstore in Ann Arbor on June 5th. Um, Can you give us a little preview of this book? Uh, Yes, it's uh, it's called Burning Midnight, uh, and it has to deal with uh, some of the gang activity in Detroit, specifically the Mexican gangs. This is uh, I, I want to stress that the Mexican community is a very positive community. That they've done wonders for the part of their the area of Detroit. But with you know, with every new uh, new group, you know, comes its bad element as well. Sure. Uh, so the book has to do for the first time. Amos Walker's old friend slash enemy, um, Inspector John Alderdice of the Detroit Police Department, is his client. His uh, estranged grown son. Uh, has married a Mexican woman from Mexican town whose whose teenage brother um, has joined one of the gangs, and Alderdice wants Walker to find some way to get him out of that gang, turn in the right direction uh, before things become tragic. So it has a great deal to do with uh, with the changing face of Detroit and Mexican town and uh, places like that. I've got some pretty darn good characters there. I'm pretty happy with. Uh, great. I, I, by the way, I was I meant to ask you before we went on the air whether you were prepared to read a passage from it. Um, I'll mention that now, and then you can either say no or I can give you... Uh, oh, the sure, t- I can grab something. Uh, Fortunately, I'm within a few arms' lengths of uh, one of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, terrific. Um, you've said that you get story ideas by talking to police officers yes is that still true yes it, uh, it still is true i still have uh, some some friends who are police officers and retired police officers and the great thing about uh, about cops is they're all um they all have stories to tell and they're tired of listening to each other's stories, so they're always looking for a new audience. So I've always got my, uh, I've always got my antenna up when I'm around a cop. Um, you uh, you started out and and gained a lot of your reputation with the Amos Walker books, and then took a hiatus uh, from him and and brought him back. Uh, sort of like Sherlock Holmes was brought back in 1997. Uh, what brought you to return to? Amos? Well, I never wanted to get away from it, to be honest with you. I actually ran into a, a legal situation. My, my first agent, who was, who was a wonderful man, I was with him for 12 years until his death, had told me, he says, when you know that you're successful when somebody sues you. Well, nobody sued me, but uh, I, I, I basically got out of a contract with a major publisher and... Uh, and uh, while the legalities were being worked out, I couldn't write a Amos Walker novel for seven years. Meanwhile, I kept the I kept the character alive in short stories. I published with uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine and Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. But when I took the series, when when everything was cleared away and everything was settled amicably, when I took the series to uh, the Mysterious Press, my editor there said, "We'd like to start with a big." Big book. Well, I've been in the business long enough to know what they mean by a big book. They mean that it measures at least an inch and a half across the spine. <laughs> uh, so what I did was I took uh, an Amos Walker short story I was very, very proud of called The Man Who Loved Noir, and I expanded it, added a great deal due to it, uh, and uh, and came up with a novel called Never Street. Um, and that was uh, that was I think that probably weighed out at about uh, 400 pages published. Um, and uh, that uh, that relaunched the series. And in the meantime, I think it was kind of nice that I had a little break from it to, uh, because I had a lot of fresh ideas I wanted to bring to the character. Um, he uh, 
he has aged slightly over the years in the way that series protagonists do. How else has he changed over the years? Well, he's um, um, he's he's always had to get along on his wits, but he knows now that he doesn't have the the, the quickness of step or quite the, uh, the the strength that he had in the beginning. Um, so he's learned to rely on his wits even more. He moves a little bit slower um, when he is injured. Um, it takes him longer to get over those injuries. In one book, uh, I think the opening chapter of one book, I put a thirty out six uh, deer rifle slug through his leg, and that was several books ago, and he's still limping. He may always have that limp. And for a while, he's always been a heavy smoker and heavy drinker, although not a drunk. Um, but uh, for a while there, I had him in Vicodin as well, so I thought we'll 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 see how he deals with this addiction and how he throws off this addiction. So I keep throwing these. Uh, uh, someone once said, my, my wife, Deborah Morgan, uh, said that uh, uh, the best way to write is to uh, chase your main character up a tree and then throw rocks on him, <laughs> rocks at him, and uh, help him, and then let him find his way down. So I, I throw more rocks at him from time to time, and I've, I've, I, I, I use the uh, uh, the frailties of, of age as one more challenge to his uh, to his uh, his courage and his determination. So I've learned to use those. Uh, uh, those things that might at first seem to be a disadvantage. I think when uh, Raymond Chandler came up with uh, Philip Marlowe, he he could easily have made him a World War One veteran. He still would have been a young man when he began writing about him in the 30s. But uh, by the 19 uh, late 1950s, um, that would have started to uh, uh, to uh, to change things for his world. So for a while, I regretted making Amos Walker a Vietnam vet because uh, they're starting to get up there now. But when I began writing about him, I was 28, and he was 32, and I turned 60 in September. And I think the last time I mentioned his age, he was somewhere in his 40s. So I've kind of aged him on a sliding scale. Yeah. But uh, to keep him viable, I'm going to have to uh, have to deal with the fact that he is, yes, an older man. But happy to say that a lot of people in my generation and older were very... Uh, uh, very physically fit, so I think I can keep him going for a while yet before I before I put Amos Walker behind a walker. <laughs> well, he does. Uh, he is taking some Vicodin in the in the latest book, but mm. then he can still give chase to a uh, a young man in Southwest Detroit yeah, with the help of the Vicodin. <laughs> <laughs> Um, many people who are married, many writers who are married say that their wives are their best editors. Would you say that? Yeah, I really would. Uh, I've always been, I've always believed that, uh, I think the most important thing a writer of fiction can have is a sense of reader. Uh, as a matter of fact, being able to step out of yourself well enough to, to know that, you are reaching that person that you are giving them enough information um, for your story to uh, to be something they can follow, but not so much information that uh, that you bog down the, the the story. And sometimes you can be very close to what you're writing and not be able to maintain that. So the writers who have been able to do that are ones who have a good sense of reader. And I think the best way to do that is always when you're writing, have a particular person in mind whose opinions you respect. And Deborah was a professional editor before I met her, and she's also an excellent writer, so she's been very good. Before her, my mother was very good. She wouldn't read my books, but I would be talking about my plots, and she would almost always snag up on something that I had uh, questions about myself. So she was, a, she was a very good outside reader as well. But I've been very fortunate with that. I've known some writers who there might have been a wife or a mother or something like that who have long since passed on, but they still picture that person when they do their writing to help them keep their uh, their compass. 
a a um a character in one of Kurt Vonnegut's books, who is a genre novelist as well, this is from Bluebeard, says that the key to writing well is to write for, for one particular person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting to hear that. It's the same as speaking. When you speak in, in public, you're not speaking to an audience. You're speaking as if you're speaking to one particular person. And it works. It works. It takes a while to develop that. Uh, but it's very good if you have something like that at the beginning to help you to help you shape that. I think so. Um, in the Amos Walker books, that's where um, you really find uh, the detailed descriptions of Detroit and its suburbs. Uh, I know that a lot of the kids here at the radio station are sort of have a, you know, certainly a love-hate relationship, but a fascination with Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, were you like that when you were young? Oh, yeah. Yeah, always. I think... Um uh, I grew up, I was born in Ann Arbor, so was my father, and so was my grandfather back in um, 1867. Uh, so I've been in this area all my life and lived in a rural area, basically, outside Ann Arbor. So when you, when you, when you grow up on a farm, you tend to have that. All of your, your, uh, all of the media comes filtered through Detroit, so you feel like you understand the city. At the same time, you know, you have a, a certain antipathy toward it because, for one thing, you don't particularly like cities. But uh, it's it's good to have that combination of things. I think you have to have either a love relationship or a hate relationship or a love-hate relationship with a place to write about. You have to have the passion one way or the other to uh, to make that place real to yourself and to your reader as well. And that's the way I feel about Detroit. It's a wonderful town. It's a, I love the architecture. I love the history. Uh, I love the people. I love the strength of the place. Um, I hate its corruption. Um, I hate the people whose own interests get in the way of uh, of helping the city rebuild itself. But um, uh, the city itself and I are on a very good uh, first name basis. I think. Uh, well, that's uh, that's that's interesting that you mentioned the corruption because we'll come back to that a little bit later. It's on on my uh, list of topics. Um, do you, uh, what was your, were there writers in your family out here? No, actually not. Uh, although I grew up in a reading family, I, I don't think there was a. I, there was a very long period when I saw my parents without a book in their hands. My my father was a, a truck driver and a teamster for many years, and uh, my mother uh, uh, finished out her her working career as a postal inspector. But there were always magazines and books scattered around the place. My mother was a, a very early uh, member of the Book of the Month Club, so we had all these wonderful books of literature around the house, which were basically worth nothing to collectors. But I didn't know that there was always always something to read, and uh, they encouraged me very much. I think my father was my most loyal reader, and I think my mother was my most uh, um, encouraging mentor. She would always. Uh, um, push me to get not push me to get ahead, but uh, applaud every every inch inch that I made of progress along the step of the way. That's I think it's very uh, not everyone every writer has it. I don't think it's uh, it's something you have to have, but it certainly makes your choice of occupations a lot more uh, comfortable. So so when you announced that you were going in your twenties that you were going to become a novelist, they supported you in that decision. Yeah, they did. I think uh, I think my father was a little. 
um, a little nonplussed by it. I say he loved to read, but he never knew a reader. He was always he was always a blue collar background. Yeah. Uh, he never knew a writer, I should say. Um, so I think he was a little worried about whether or not I could make a living at that. And he was right. I'm still worried about whether I can make a living at it. <laughs> and those were somewhat more optimistic times in the 1970s to try yeah, to become a writer. Yeah, I think so. I think so. When my father, my, my parents had a hard time. I think one of the most optimistic times in in their life was supposed to be the 1950s, and that's the time when they were doing a. a not well at all, so that must have been a very difficult time for them. But, um, um, and I don't know if I'd call my parents optimists per se, hmm. but I do know that they, they did not believe in, uh, in uh, sacrificing your dreams. You know, if you had something you really, really were passionate about, then go ahead and do it. Well, I think we'll take a short break here. We're coming up on 5 o'clock, and you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And then when we come back, maybe we can hear a little bit of the next Amos Walker. Great. You know what? Living in America ain't no fun. You better have some money or you got to be on the run. And it's a goddamn shame Cause without cash, you trash You gotta be blessed To live in America The men's are dogs That ain't a bad thing It's better than living in Africa You got to have some education You got to know about your demonstration Living in America Better be Have it tuned to Living Writers on WCBN-FM. I'm Tex, uh, filling in this week for T, who is away. She will be back soon. Uh, and to the sounds of another Detroit artist uh, who has played in Ann Arbor, he points out many times and has even been a guest on this program, Andre Williams. Uh, we are talking with uh, Lauren Esselman. Lauren D. Esselman, a mystery novelist who was born in Ann Arbor. I didn't learn that uh, until today and grew up here. Uh, did you go to the University of Michigan? Uh, no, I didn't. My grades aren't good enough. 
<laughs> I went to Eastern Michigan University, uh-huh. and I have to say I got an excellent, uh, excellent education there. It's really good. Uh, uh, professors and instructors there. So my my first wife went to the University of Michigan, and we were always comparing our educations. And I think we uh, we both fared pretty well. I have uh, I've uh, I'm a freelance writer and editor myself, and I've worked with. Uh, uh, lots of kids who have been through the English program at Eastern, and I'm always, uh, each and every one of them has, has developed some kind of individual voice. Well, you have a new book coming out, uh, Burning Midnight. Yes. And so maybe we can, uh, maybe we can hear a little bit of that. What, uh, what is the setting of what you're going to read to us? Well, I think one of the nice things about starting from the beginning is you don't have to use too much time on the setup. The setup is actually the writing itself. Uh, so this, is, this will be the opening of the book. Um, and while it, it, I think it will give you the flavor of, uh, of, of the style of the book, um, we'll leave the, uh, the exact incidents of the plot itself uh, to the imagination until anybody happens to pick up the book in a bookstore and take a look at it. Um, I'm going to be fairly uh, fairly brief, about uh, three, not two very long paragraphs. I've, it's my observation that anyone, no one past age 10 really likes being read to, so I will uh, beg the audience's indulgence for a few paragraphs. Is that all right? That's fair. Okay, here we go. This, this is chapter one. Um, <clears throat> I had a mouse in the office, a cute little seal-colored rodent, with black shiny eyes like licorice drops and whiskers longer on one side than the other, so that when he worked his nose he looked like Uncle Vanya. He lived in the wall, in a hole in the baseboard, one of those gothic arches you see in cartoons. Inside he would sleep in a bed made out of a sardine can. I called him Wally. Next time he stuck out his head I was going to brain him with a stapler. It would be the acme of my week. It was March, a muddy one with the remains of February blizzard going like 60 in the storm drains. And all the feral spouses and politicians to, to let seemed to have given up their bad habits for Lent. That left me with time to shred some old files and make room in the stove-in green cabinets for the heap on the desk. It was pleasant enough work, demanding little from the faculties of reason, and the noise made by those ancient infidelities and aging runaways as they passed through the blades sounded like jet planes taking off for exotic destinations. I was stuck in Detroit, but that was okay. Most Detroiters don't live there by choice. I paid off a mortgage in my house near Hamtramck and had a little money in the bank from the spike in shady behavior that always takes place around the middle of January when the New Year's resolutions run out of gas. With luck, it would hold me through Easter. You could set your calendar by the season of impiety that followed. So that's the opening. Uh, the season of impiety. There's mm. there's a trademark, uh, <laughs> Lauren Lauren Esselman phrase. Has have you 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 you've never moved Amos out of Detroit? Have no, you? I have. I've, I've I've taken him to places around the area briefly and things like that. But the center. Uh, has always been Detroit, and you know, people ask me, you know, why don't I move to L.A. or something? But uh, it seems to me that uh, L.A. has so many private eyes that uh, you know, living in it that the country's in danger of tipping that direction. Uh, <laughs> there's only one private eye in Detroit, at least fictively speaking. Um, and uh, and and in truth to tell, uh, Amos Walker needs Detroit more than Detroit needs Amos Walker. That's that's really his. Uh, 
his home patch. I think once I had him wondering about whether or not he'd uh, followed the waters locally enough that he had to move someplace else like Flint or Lansing or something like that. But then he'd have to, uh, he'd have to start over from scratch and learn all the bad neighborhoods and the good neighborhoods all over again. So that's uh, very, that, they're, they're basically two co-stars. There are two main characters in the Amos Walker novels, and one's Walker and the other is uh, the city of Detroit. It's certainly very much, uh, very much interacting uh, with each other. Uh, well, once again, uh, uh, this book, uh, Burning Midnight, if you're intrigued by that little taste, uh, there will be an author appearance at Aunt Agatha's bookstore uh, in Ann Arbor on June 5th. Uh, they were kind enough to, uh, to put me on to you, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the genre bookstore since, you know, since Borders has closed and mainstream bookstores seem to be having a lot of problems. But that one seems to be doing, I don't know their financial data, but they uh, they do seem to um, have, it seems to be hopping whenever I go in there. And there seems to be a real community of readers uh, centered on it. Do you, do you travel a lot uh, to, yeah, to yeah, do I book do. Signings? Not as much as I, as I used to. Um, and, and that's mainly my choice because I love seeing new places, but that I, I travel about as well as some delicate vintages of wine. If they could just freeze dry me and mail me there, I'd be a lot happier. But, um, yeah, I've been to a lot of bookstores around the country, and I, and I guess this is doing very well, by the way. They're celebrating their 20th anniversary this year. Not many independent booksellers can uh, make that claim. Um, and I think one of the reasons why they, most of those places are doing well is because they do specialize. Um, that really is the key to success. I know it was when I began researching private detectives for this series, the first thing I learned was that all private detectives specialize. Uh, and that's when I decided to make Amos Walker a specialist in tracing missing persons. He isn't always doing that, but it, uh, it leads to a lot of nice, uh, nice mysteries uh, for the benefit of the series. And uh, these bookstores tend to uh, um, gravitate to a particular kind of reader who really appreciates having a hangout where that reader can talk about things that maybe are only of interest, you know, some esoteric things that are only of interest to their fellow uh, aficionados. Uh, so they become almost like the, the readers and writers' salons of uh, 80 years ago in Paris. They get to just, just had to kind of hang out and talk about the, the kind of writing and reading that they enjoy. Um, and they're very loyal. These customers are extremely loyal. I was signing once at... Uh, and Agatha's years ago, and I had just run out of books. This doesn't happen very often. Not John Grisham, but I'd run out of books, but the, the new book. And uh, and the 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 owners are, were very friendly with uh, uh, with uh, the uh, the owner of the uh, Little Professor bookstore farther on the on the west side of town. Mm -hmm. And uh, with their permission, I said, "You can still pick it up in Nicholas." Um, and the, <laughs> the 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 customer said, "No." He says, "My." He said, I'd rather pay, I'd rather pay more and, uh, and bring money to my favorite bookstore. So you don't find that kind of loyalty too much among the chains. Well, and the chains didn't particularly try to cultivate it, and, and, and that's why they got in trouble. Yeah, well, what happened was that, you know, and, and people tend to, you know, try to draw conclusions based on trends, and they tried to think like e-books or something like that is what hurt Borgers. But what hurt Borgers is what hurts most businesses. It was uh, uh, a lot of bad decisions were made. They expanded when the country was uh, was drawing in its horns. 
uh, when they finally, very late in the day, decided to uh, to offer their books online, they farmed it out to Amazon, which was their chief competitor, and that was uh, probably one of the poorest choices I think any company has made. Barnes and Noble, however, has been doing most things right, and I don't I don't mean that I'm playing favorites here because I I, I briefly knew them, the Borders Brothers, yeah, and I remember what a wonderful store that flagship store was in Detroit before there was a chain. It's a great store. I worked there. That was my first job oh, yeah. in, in Michigan. I, I always heard the application tests were like an IQ test. Is that true? It was well. It was it was a book knowledge test, mm-hmm. and it was uh, my parents were English professors, so I did pretty well. But a lot of people were very intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know this is probably asked of you a lot. Uh, you know, there's a lot of gloom and doom about the book business. Uh, but on the other hand, the Internet seems to foster communities of people with a specific interest. So maybe it's good for genre fiction or hard-boiled private eye fiction or Western fiction. What? How does the future of the book business look to you oh, right I, now? I think, that, I think the book business is very rosy. You know, um, I'm not myself a reader of e-books. I like the, the physical uh, texture of reading a, uh, an actual book. But uh, what I like about that genre is uh, that uh, that area of technology is, first of all, it makes books affordable for the first time, really, since the paperback revolution of the 1950s, when you could, for two book, two bits, you know, you could have a great piece of entertainment, and people would, you know, people would, uh, you know, spend five dollars at a time just buying, you know, half dozen or dozens of books at a time and that was uh that was good all the way around. Everybody made more money out of that. And uh, so these books are a great deal more affordable. My biggest argument with most of my publishers over the last thirty years has been the books just cost too much. There's just too much uh competition out there from other areas, even even from the book area itself. You can go to a used bookstore and get it cheaper or go to a library and take it out for free. Uh so I think finally the technology at least came around to that way of thinking. Um Second, if it uh, if it if it makes those spine-bending school backpacks obsolete, I'll be I'll be very much in favor of it. And also, it's, it's reaching a brand new audience. It's reaching an audience that uh, that loves technology and gadgetry, uh, and actually does what I think any kind of publisher wants to do. They're actually reaching people who don't normally read books in many cases. So I think that's good. Um, it is it is easier than ever to get hold of a book than it has been at any given time. And uh, for affordable prices, you can order them online. You can read up on the books online. You can read the reviews. And one of the things that most of the online distributors do, which is the same thing that a really good brick-and-mortar bookseller does, is they say, if you liked this author, I think you'll like this author as well. And that's good for everyone all the way around. It's a very folksy way of doing business. You don't think of that, you don't think of folksiness when you think of the Internet, but uh, they do operate very much the way the independent book- bookseller does uh, when, it, when he's at his best. So um, um, I think uh, I think that the future of the book industry is very rosy, better than it has been for a number of years. And that's uh, that's interesting. Uh, I actually used to work for a company that provided music databases to online mm-hmm. retail, and a lot of what we did was try to refine those functions. A great deal of work goes into making that thing folksy. Right. Uh, so it's interesting to see uh, that uh, you know, from your perspective, that it's it's working reasonably well on on the on a, on a writer's end. And uh, I'm also, you know, I'm also interested to hear when I go on iTunes, you know, when I was went out as a little kid to buy 45 RPM records, 
uh, they were 99 cents at the yeah. local store and somehow buying a song online uh, does put me in mind of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're, you and your characters are not computer literate and, and are somewhat not at ease with technology. But so would you say that you are you don't dislike technology, you just personally are, it doesn't come naturally to you? It doesn't come naturally to me. Uh, people will call me a Luddite, but no, I don't. I'm not in favor of smashing the machines. Um, I just found that working with manual typewriters uh, makes me independent. You know, I don't have to worry about tech support. Yeah. Now, I'm saying that at the same time, I have to confess, I think it's the first time I've done this uh, uh, in uh, in this this wide uh, uh, public. Um, I have been forced to use a low-level computer. My publishers, and particularly uh, uh, foreign publishers and things like that, are insisting that uh, that books be uh, be sent electronically. Uh, and rather than uh, ask my wife to do that for me and take her time, unless she'd be she'd be willing to do it, uh, to retype my stuff on the computer after I did it on, the, on a typewriter, uh, or hire somebody to do it, I figured I might as well cut out the middleman. So I put my my brilliant grown stepson Kevin Williams to work. He's uh, he's he's a uh, an electronic whiz, and he put together uh, assembled a computer for me from spare parts, which I call Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> and it, uh, it 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 does not hook up to the internet. Uh, it's really really a glorified word processor. But when the book is done, um, uh, Deborah will uh, put it on her external hard drive and then send it to the publisher from her computer. But for those who are discouraged by this, I'm keeping my hand in with the uh, with the manual typewriters. I do most of my uh, my beginning work and drafts and short stories and all of my correspondence on manual typewriters. So I'm I want to keep my fingers strong enough to operate those. <laughs> they they are beautiful machines. They really are. They're they're they're, they're magnificent. It's a magnificent collection of simple machines: levers, uh, pulleys, wheels. Uh, operated entirely uh, by the power of your fingers. It's the closest thing to a perpetual motion machine I think we'll ever see. Uh, you are listening to Living Writers. Uh, I'm Tex, filling in for T, who will be back. She's away. We're talking with Lauren D. Esselman, uh, whose new novel, Burning Midnight, will be out. He'll be signing it on June 5th at Aunt Agatha's Bookstore in downtown Ann Arbor. And the folks at Aunt Agatha's uh, told me and said that I should ask you about this, that you're working on a new book about Al Capone. Yeah. And uh, I wondered, is it a novel or is it what the Japanese call a nonfiction novel? <laughs> it's, a, it, it's a novel. Um, it was one of those, uh, I, have, I think every writer has a dream project, you know, sitting up on a, on a closet shelf he wants to just pull down and, uh, and, and noodle around with when he gets the time. And a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I found myself I call this outrunning my legs. I had six books finished and sold to my publisher, so they didn't want to see me for a while. So I had a lot of a lot of time to work on this book, and it wound up being the longest thing I've ever written, longest thing I probably ever will write. It wound up being 796 pages long in manuscript, and it's called The Confessions of Al Capone, and it is a novel with a very solid historical backdrop. Basically, it takes place in Chicago in the 1920s and in Miami Beach in 1944, after he's been. Released by from Alcatraz and is living on and is a, is a state that still stands there in Miami. And basically, the uh, the, the the central figure of the story, a young man um, who uh, uh, had failed out on, on divinity school 
and uh, now is working for as a low-level clerk for the FBI. But he has connections to the Capone mob because his father used to drive a beer truck for Al Capone and knew him quite well. And J. Edgar Hoover taps the young man uh, because of this background to oppose the priest, work his way into the ailing Capone's uh, confidence, and get Capone to give up information on his former associates who are still active in the wartime black market. And the deeper he gets into it, the more it becomes Al Capone's story as Al Capone begins to loosen up and tell his own story from his own point of view. Uh, and meanwhile, the, the young man is dealing with all these feelings of guilt, guilt to his faith, uh, guilt to a man that against everything that he ever thought would happen, finds himself finding some kind of begrudging affection for Al Capone and feeling that he's betraying people all the way around, betraying his father. Um, and also uh, trying to cement a good working, a good uh, familiar relationship with his father at the same time having to lie to him all, all, all this is going on. So a great deal of many, great many things are going on here. And I had a whale of a time with it because those are two years I've always been fascinated with. I used to hear my parents telling me stories about prohibition and about the war. Um, and so a lot of, in a way, a lot of uh, family stories are getting told in this book. It'll be out, it was originally going to be out this October, but they delayed it uh, just to get uh, more of the publicity going. And it's going to be out uh, June of next year, they tell me now. Is, is there a Detroit angle in the book? Yeah, there is, uh, because it was with Detroit where uh, Capone came to uh, have his famous armor-plated uh, Cadillac built. Um, wow. He originally went, at least in the story as I tell it, um, he originally went to Henry Ford, but Ford wanted nothing to do with Al Capone, uh, so he went to GM. And uh, that uh, that Cadillac is, uh, is still in existence someplace in some museum. It's, I think it weighed seven tons. Wow. And yeah, he did have a lot of connections with uh, with uh, Detroit. He uh, he dealt very closely with the Purple Gang in Detroit, who uh, supplied him with uh, his uh, his 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 most famous brand of of alcohol, uh, Old Log Cabin, which is now I think it's called Canadian Club. Um, so there was uh, he was he spent almost as much time in Detroit as he did in uh, in uh, Chicago and uh, New York. I, I would think so, and with the, the, the Italian arm of the Purple Gang as mm -hmm. well, sure. Um, a great deal has been written about Al Capone. Um, I looked him up online on Wikipedia and noticed that uh, the astonishing variety of languages in which there is an entry for Al Capone, including oh, yeah. even yeah. Javanese, which barely is written these days, right. but they do have an entry for Al Capone. He's, he's unique. He's uniquely American, despite the Italian background. Yeah. Uh, he is something that could only have taken place in America during uh, uh, the fantastic time of Prohibition. And what fascinated me and what I wanted to get through in this book is how young he was. All of these people are, are usually played by middle-aged uh, uh, actors when you watch the movies, so you don't get the impression how young they were. He was, he was 21 when he came to Chicago. Matter of fact, he turned 21 the day the country went dry. As he says in the book, you know, who says God ain't got a sense of humor? <laughs> um, by 25, he was running Chicago. Uh, he was uh, 30 years old, I think, at the time of the uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And uh, a couple of years later, he was in prison. He died at the age of uh, 47 in 1947. <laughs> um, so it's amazing how young these people were. All these guys were in their 20s. That's the amazing part of it. So many of them were, were just what we would consider kids now or when we think of... Uh, a youth drug gang in Detroit. Yeah, and very comparable to that in their 
propensity to do irrational or impulsive things. Right. It's a number of things. It's that, you know, it's the, the, it's a combination of when you're a kid, you're going to live forever, or when you grow up in that environment, you figure you're not going to live very much longer, um, so you don't care, and you can't scare them uh, with, uh, with the law because many of them don't think they'll live long enough to go to jail. Would you say that's how you see Capone differently from from earlier writers that you're presenting him as a more so. youthful? I think so. It's that and his way of looking at things. You have to look at his mindset. Nope, everybody's a hero in his own story. He never considered yeah. himself a villain. He was certainly he was certainly responsible for some very villainous things, and yet he looks uh, so much better than uh, some of the people who are trying to get him. At least he he never killed an killed an innocent bystander trying to get to his rivals, but they killed and injured many innocent bystanders trying to get to him. On one side, you can say he's partially responsible for that as well. Uh, but it's interesting to note that he always took care of uh, uh, medical arrangements, sometimes very expensive ones, for people who were. Uh, suffered uh, collateral damage in the attacks on him um, so I find him interesting also if you know if, if I'm not I'm, I'm not trying to glorify him um, but there have been many um, um, very adoring books written about somebody like Lyndon Bain Johnson who was responsible for 50,000 deaths in Vietnam a war that he had privately admitted early on could not be won um, so I don't, I don't see him in a, in a worse light than somebody like that. And, and your, your foil for him in the novel, The Young Man, comes to uh, his realization of these things is part of the story. Right, right. Not that, not that at the end he finds that Capone has, has redeemed himself, but, it's all, but it, it helps place him, uh, put many things in perspective. Al Capone versus J. Edgar Hoover. You know, who, how much is one the hero? How much is one the villain? How much are they eat? A little bit of on both sides. Uh, so it's a very much a coming-of-age uh, uh, story for a young man who's, who's uh, 22 throughout most of the book, yeah. uh, which, you know, in, in this period in history, 22 was really less mature than 22 is today. And what's the name of this book going to be? It's, it's called The Confessions of Al Capone. Uh-huh. All right. Well, once again, you can ask uh, Lauren D. Esselman more about this book and about his brand-new Amos Walker novel, uh, uh, Burning Midnight, at Aunt Agatha's Bookstore on June 5th. We just have a few more minutes here, if I may bring things back to Detroit. Uh, you have... Um, uh, referred obliquely and evoked the corruption in the city uh, in various books of yours, and you have uh, been proven prophetic in that. So if I can ask you to prophecy from New York to Detroit to Chicago, there's a great deal of talk about Detroit's revival these days. Do you think it will succeed? I sincerely hope it will, uh, but I've uh, had so many disappointments along the way, I don't want to get my hopes up too much. I think one of their chief problems right now is um, um, I, think the, uh, I think the city council has, uh, has too much power, and the mayor not enough, and I'm not saying that because I, I think the mayor's a better person than the city council, but I think you're going to run into a real gridlock whenever somebody tries to make which is what is often going to be an unpopular decision to move a city ahead, and uh, a bunch of people who are opposed to you who are afraid to make a, an unpopular decision. Uh, so I see that happening now. At the same time, I don't want to have the mayor uh, get too much power because we've seen through people like Coleman Young and Kwame Kilpatrick what happens when, uh, when you leave authority alone.
there were some some uh, some pretty detailed corruption investigations in Detroit in the last few years. Ever mm-hmm. think of writing about it? Oh yeah, yeah, that kind of thing works its way in. Not, I try to write about it in such a way that it, it won't uh, it won't date too quickly. Uh, one of the from a from a artist standpoint, one of the good things about corruption uh, is it never gets old. Um, one of the sad things about it is it's always here. Um, but I like to I always like to quote uh, or at least uh, allude to uh, Jonathan Swift when he was writing Gulliver's Travels 500 years ago. Um, rather than deal with political figures of the day whose names would be nothing to us today, he dealt with politics. And when Gulliver is in Lilliput, you know, where he's the giant and all the people are the little people, um, the People who are running for high office, they ask him to stretch his uh, handkerchief out like a trampoline between stakes, um, and they leap aboard the handkerchief, and they jump up, and the one who jumps the highest uh, attains the office. And I think that's something you can still appreciate today. Politics hasn't changed that much. And you do have a way of working this into your books uh, in sort of a glancing way so that it adds to the atmosphere rather than going off as a tract on on urban corruption right do you do you consciously you know uh, does it just filter in from the what you're reading in the papers or do you think out ways to do that yeah it's a little, little of both you know i've, I've got a a uh, huge uh, whole whole drawer full of files on detroit and one of them is called detroit changes you know and i'll clip something out like when they when uh uh, when General Motors is moving out of the General Motors building into the Rensen and stuff like that, and I'll keep that kind of thing handy. Or uh, when a new hotel is being built, which we hadn't seen for a while, or something was changing, and they were talking possibly of changing the name of the Cass Corridor, and when East Detroit became East Point, I keep things like that in mind because I know I'm going to have some use for them. Uh, a lot of fine articles about the development of Mexican Town and Little Mexico, which is uh, their kind of sister city down in Mexico, where a lot of uh, uh, auto industry um, uh, activity is taking place. Um, so I'm always uh, using that kind of thing. At the same time, I'm always picking up information that even at, 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 the, at the moment I don't know that I'm going to be using that. I'll just be talking to somebody at a cocktail party or overhear something on the radio or see something in the paper. Uh, and it just kind of sticks in my mind because it's just interesting. I don't know even at the time that I'm thinking that I'll be able to use it. But they go into a they go into a compost heap in my head, and uh, they begin to sprout and, and, and mingle together. And after a while, I've got an idea. Well, maybe that's a good place to end with the fertile mind of Lauren D. Esselman. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you, Tex. I appreciate that. And uh, once again, at living at uh, Aunt Agatha's bookstore on June 5th, you can meet uh, meet uh, Lauren D. Esselman and get his uh his autograph and maybe buy a book or two. Thanks again. You have been listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM. Tune in again next week at 430.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, May 16th, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, the fallout from JP Morgan's loss of $2 billion in trading sparks renewed calls for regulation and a defense of risky practices. In Bahrain, security forces detain protest leaders in early morning raids, and the government brings a prominent critic to court to face charges. And across the country, states are slashing social services. We'll go to Pennsylvania, where activists fight to protect public education. Those stories and more. But first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. Today, a historic trial got underway at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague. Former Serb commander Ratko Mladic is facing charges related to ethnic cleansing during the 1992-1995 Bosnian War. Tribunal spokesperson Nurma Jalakic spoke about the opening of the trial this morning. It started with the opening statement of the prosecution in which they laid out all of the evidence that they had gathered and are planning to present uh, in the course of this trial where they're charging him with genocide and crimes against humanity. Mladic pleaded not guilty to 11 counts of war crimes, which included the massacre of more than 7,000 Muslims in Srebrenica. The sentencing hearing of former Liberian leader Charles Taylor is also underway at The Hague. The special court for Sierra Leone convicted him of war crimes in April. The prosecution wants the former president jailed for 80 years. Taylor addressed the court today, denying his guilt and pleading for 